The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, is sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, a leading Australian corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Focused on your vision, Barclay Pierce specialises in making it a successful reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison. Now, today we are lucky enough to have with us the group chairman of Duxton Asset Management, Ed Peters, a really sort of uh, interesting and wide-ranging asset management business. So let's jump straight into it. Ed, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Ed, you formed Duxton Asset Management back in 2009, so it's it's been quite a journey already. But what did you do to get that to that point where you wanted to form your own asset management firm? Um, I've been a, I've been an investment banker, then an asset manager before that. Um, I was running a, a short seventy eighty billion dollars U.S. of assets uh, inside of Deutsche uh, Deutsche Bank at that point in time when I left, and I uh, took a little bit of a personal journey in that a lot of things were happening in the industry. Uh, we'd gone through. Um, uh, the first part of the Great Recession, um, we were coming out of the the beginning of that, i.e., the, the financial, the you know, what I'm going to call the first part of the financial crisis because I don't think we're through it uh, just yet. And I didn't like a lot of the ethics that were happening in some of the uh, bigger banks and some of the bigger companies, and said, you know what, don't really want to be a part of it, so I'm going to start my own journey. And uh, very much that's the genesis of Duxon. What's the journey been like since you started Duxton? Has it been difficult uh, for you, you know, coming from a company like Deutsche with all the resources behind a big corporation like that? There's always surprises. And uh, there's always, you, you walk around the corners like, oh my gosh, there's something that I didn't expect there. Um, when you're a big company, uh, sometimes those things uh, get swept aside very quickly. When you're in a smaller company, they loom very, very large. Um, so yes, there were challenges and uh, some of them came from left field, but we had a, a fairly clear sale uh, all the way through. We've had a, a client base that's been uh, very loyal um, and uh, has been supporting us. Uh, we've done things that are a little bit different than most people. Um, we're, uh, from the very beginning, uh, we took a view that uh, you know, we want to, to do things in the real asset space. And a lot of that was formed by where we thought we were in the economic cycle. And that's only uh, firmed in our minds as we've gone through the journey. Now, what, what, just before we delve into exactly what you're doing right now and your view on the markets, what, what do you think the biggest lesson is that you've learned uh, along this journey that you've just been talking us through? Okay, this is going to sound absolutely awful. But, uh, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> sorry, uh, but my 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 view has uh, firmed uh, that people are that most firms are following a path to a cliff, and they're following a path to a cliff because everybody else is doing it, so they have to do exactly the same thing. Independent thought, independent thinkers, I find in the family office world. But the bigger you get in the institutional world, it's much more difficult for people to uh, 
deviate from the path. Uh, and if everybody else is not doing it, then it's dangerous for me to do it. So if you take uh, uh, a major asset class, equities or bonds or property as in commercial real estate or residential real estate, that's easy to do because everybody's doing it. The problem is as soon as you go outside of that, it becomes exponentially more difficult for an institutional to do that, albeit there's limited institutionals that will take that risk. And what you find is the mainstream, especially the smaller, mid-sized, and the bottom end of the larger pension funds don't want to take much risk. And they certainly don't want to do something that the peer group is not doing. So that has crystallized in my thinking and, and in what I've seen uh, since spinning out. And indeed, many family offices will also go down the same, we have to do stuff where everybody else is doing it because it's too dangerous uh, to do something outside of that. Does that make any sense at all? It makes perfect sense. Uh, what you're essentially describing is that there is a lot of missed opportunities out there. Unbelievable amounts of missed opportunities. What's the biggest one? Um, I think the biggest thing, so the biggest one is going to be formed by what happens in uh, the financial markets around the cost of money. So the biggest opportunity that's beginning to loom right now is the fact that my, my firm belief is that we're seeing a shift in the paradigm around inflation. And my mm -hmm. firm belief is that we're in the very first part of an inflationary cycle, mm -hmm. which is the pleasant part of an inflationary cycle. It's where everybody feels richer because your house price has gone up, your wages are beginning to move up, you're feeling like, oh, that's really cool and really great. And so you're more willing to spend, which creates a virtuous circle or vicious cycle, if you want to think of it that way, for inflation. Now, that is going to give us a set of sea change that is going to be absolutely phenomenal for an investor who's thinking about it. For anybody who's going to try and do exactly the same things they've been doing for the last 20 years as we've been in a long-term decline in the cost of money, i.e. in the long-term decline of interest rates, it's going to be a truly traumatic experience. So for me, it's that change that's going to make things really interesting. That, that's a, that, that could be quite a dramatic economic change to what we're seeing and where we are right now at the it's moment. It could, could be. It will be. And it, exactly. And, and for many people out there, it's not going to be pretty. What should people be doing to protect themselves or to get ready to anticipate? So this is where the fun thing comes in. Most financial uh, planners have to follow a script. Most pension funds have to or need to invest in the same way that their peer group is. So a lot of the chaos is going to come, even though people might see the, the, the change, from the inability to shift. Now, from my point of view, let's go back to 1991. Let's think about the last time we had high interest rates in this country, in Australia. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in my office. I'm looking at my ex-wife's savings certificate which was giving her 17.6% wow. on her savings account. Wow. That was in the ANZ branch, about 400 meters from my office right now. When you think about that, and you think about what was the forward price earnings ratio of the all lords here in Australia, when I can get 17.6% on my money, well, it had to be very low, doesn't it, to be able to compete with that. And if you go back and look at it, it was just under three times 
forward-looking earnings. Wow. Most people don't look at economic history. They don't think about it. Mm. So when you look back at 1991, when that cost of capital or the, the, the rate my money was earning was almost 20%, every other asset had to be benchmarked off of that. So equity PEs were a fraction of what they are right now. The bond market, a AAA rated bond was giving you mid 20s as an interest rate. For those people who are listening who were old enough to have a mortgage back then, if they didn't have a capped mortgage, they were paying in the mid 20s. That was the reality of that point in time. Now, today, when you ask an asset manager, you ask a, a, a equities manager, you know, what was the PE of the market in 1991? Most people will realize, oh, my, it must have been either very high, they'll say 30 or 40, or the very low, uh, and they're thinking 10. But they're not thinking two or three times. I've asked maybe 400 different people in finance in Australia, what was it when we saw those interest rates? No one's gotten it right so far. <laughs> and that's where the fun thing comes in. So if you think about a bond portfolio as the interest rates reverse, anything with duration collapses. Equities. Anything with duration or equities have to benchmark off your higher interest rate, whether it's 5%, 7%, 10%, and they will adjust downwards as their forward-looking earnings. So the equity market becomes very, very dangerous and reasonably fun. There's ways of making a lot of money in the equity market at that point in time, but it's not where people are sitting today. Where, where are those places where you could make a lot of money in the equity market right now? I mean, we, we look at equity markets right around the world. Um, I know you're specifically talking about Australia, but, you know, in the US, they've seen record after record high in the last few months. So we've got very high valuations on equity markets right around the world. So if I was to, to uh, adjust my portfolio with the expectation that interest rates are going up and are going up by a significant amount, what should I be doing? So this is really simple. Let's go back in time and let's look at the financial pages of the newspapers 1989, 1990, 1991, as those interest rates were going up and beginning to peak. Now, if we do it in Australia and we look at that, what we're going to see is the, the, the financial press was talking about metals and mining, energy, and a little bit about agriculture. Now, agriculture was a small asset class just because most agriculture is done by miles and paws, and we've never had to collectivize it and create large corporates that do agriculture. Now that's changing, and we won't go into that right in a second, but that is changing. So those were the places you wanted to play at that point in time. Today, it's gonna to be very similar. I'd be a little bit more reticent to play with um, uh, um, the energy sector, even though there's great trade around hydrocarbons, just because there's so much change coming through and we don't have clear winners right now. So right now I'd be a little bit reticent there, but metals and mining, zero problems with. Agriculture in the way that you can access it, whether it's through Nutrigen in uh, Canada, US, or, 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 is interesting to me. Now, going backwards, equity markets are not just expensive. They're the most expensive they've been since we created equities in 1670. I mean, this stuff you can't make up. So from my side, if you're going to play in the equity markets, then play in the parts of the equity markets that do very well as that inflation bites. 
You have to remember back in the late 80s, there were companies like Wang, Polaroid, Xerox, which were never going to fail until they couldn't finance themselves. So now take a look at your ASX 200 or your S&P 500 and think about the proportion of companies, roughly one in five in the S&P, that are zombie companies that cannot finance themselves. So of the 500 biggest companies in the world, almost 20% of them go boom if it's straight to move against them or if they can't access credit. That's scary. Mm. And think about the consequences for the forward P's if things start blowing up. Again, this is sort of fun. How much do interest rates have to go up for that to happen? Well, if we just said our cost of capital goes to 5% and you work backwards from that and say, which companies are throwing off enough free cash flow to cover their debt costs at 5% plus a risk margin, say, so we'll call it six and a half or seven, and all of a sudden, there's going to be a lot of pain. It's double digit. Mm. If it's 7%, it's even worse. But 5% is not a huge leap of faith no. from where we are right now, especially if you're not throwing off free cash, especially if you've got a business that requires constant financing. So if you're looking at agriculture, parts of agriculture as almost a hedge to inflation, um, that seems to be what you're sort of uh, uh, talking about here. What about the risks of, you know, the basic risks of investing in something like agriculture? I mean, what happens if you overweight your portfolio to that sector and then we have a serious drought or serious flooding or whatever else it, it may be? Uh, you could say the same thing about pretty much any business. What happens if you're buying an automaker and your price of steel goes up? It's the same thing. Um, what I'll say is if you look at the very long term and you look at the commodity cycles, we are near the all-time lows, not at the all-time lows anymore, but near the all-time lows for most of the commodity complex, especially when you adjust for inflation. So when you adjust for inflation, we're just off the bottoms. Now, not for every part of the commodity con complex, so certainly not for beef and or uh, lamb, sheep, but if you look at the grain complex and you adjust for inflation off our last peak, we're not anywhere near even the midpoint of the cycle. Now, let's go backwards. Where we sit right now is unbelievably cool because not only do we have that long-term commodity cycle where we're near the bottom or just coming off of the bottom. But on top of that, we know that if inflation comes, food inflation tends to be one of the lead parts of your index. So people are very inflexible. They really like to eat. And because of that, what you end up seeing is that as pricing begins to move up, it's very, very, very inelastic. People still keep on buying things. They might not buy the luxury end of, of food's uh, paradigm, but certainly they're going to be buying their bread and their grains at L. Now, long term, we've been destroying our agricultural land. We've been acidifying our soils. We've been building cities on top of the best agricultural land. And technology over my lifetime has been basically keeping us flat with our population growth. The problem is we're in the, ending up in a point in time where our marginal incremental yields small when we're coming out with new seeds or new 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 um, uh, genetics etc etc so we're in a very nice squeeze point 
also around science. Now, there's going to be great things that come out. We're going to, uh, and there'll be probably more around supply chain and logistics and robotics. But in terms of, of actually taking plants and getting a lot more from them, we're bumping against the marginal increases are, are actually quite small compared to what they were 20 years ago when we had the Green, green Revolution. So from my side, I'm at the bottom of the commodity cycle. I don't have a lot of ability to increase my productivity in terms of my, my plant genetics. I mean, there will be steps forward, but it's not like the quantum leaps we saw in the 60s and 70s. And I know I've got inflation that's beginning to loom out there. So from my side, I'm very comfortable with the complex. In terms of my weather risk, I can always take a look at it and say, okay, over a 10-year cycle, I'm going to have X amount of droughts, X amount of floods. So let's then adjust for that. And what's my cash yield? And right now, I've got a high single-digit, low double-digit cash yield on most things that we're playing with in agriculture. So, Ed, within this uh, a scenario that you've described, a high inflation, um, agriculture being essentially defensive, um, moving into that period at the bottom of the commodity cycle. What are you doing with those views? What are you doing with Duxton Asset Management with those views right now? So we've uh, continued to increase our exposure. So we're, we're probably about 6% of Australia's wine production right now. Um, we are uh, 25-ish percent of the walnut production um, and climbing. Uh, we will be grow to being... Uh, between 25 and 40% of the dried fruit production, about 5% of the apples. Um, We're deploying money into the grain complex. We've reduced our dairies a bit on the basis that we think many of our dairies uh, were dependent on river water. Uh, and we think that long-term price of water will be um, will go to the highest and best use, which means that it is a phenomenal inflation hedge, but it will work against us in our dairies. So we've shifted downwards. We were either the biggest or the second biggest dairy in the country. We're probably third or fourth right now. Uh, we will keep some, but in places where groundwater uh, is um, being used and or uh, we've got good rainfall uh, rather than depending on the river. Um, we've, of course, got our, our project, which is invested in water, where we lease water to other farmers. Um, so that's sort of our portfolio at the moment. Um, the only thing we're we're adding to right now, we're doing, which is a little bit esoteric, is probably our B project, and that's part of our ESG and uh, do good and save the world uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, in that, uh, the biomass of bees has fallen by seventy two percent in my my lifetime, and we're one of the few places that can actually uh, that has what we're going to call clean bees. So we don't yet have um, uh, either the Verona mite or the three major viruses that you see around the world. And so our ambition is to become one of the biggest beekeepers in the country, but then to export clean bees to the rest of the world. So it's a sort of fun project on the side. Mm. But that would sort of be our portfolio at the moment. Um, Ed, unfortunately, we are out of time, but what a fantastic conversation. I absolutely loved having you with us today here on Stock Insiders. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts, and we'd love to catch up with you again in around six months' time and see where we're at on that inflation ride. With huge joy. Yeah, that'd be great. Fantastic. Um, Ed, thank you again uh, so yeah. much. And thanks to all of our supporters and our listeners. Uh, you're listening to the podcast Stock Insiders with me, Oriel Morrison. We'll see you next time. Thank you. 
This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, was sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, Australia's leading corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Barclay Pierce Capital provides specialised corporate advisory and equities trading services to privately owned businesses, small to medium-sized public and ASX-listed companies.